Welcome back to Off Kilter, a podcast about the fight for economic liberation and what it will take to set us all free, powered by the Century Foundation. I'm Rebecca Vallis, and every week I go behind the music with visionary leaders and light workers working to reshape America's off-kilter economy into one where everyone can thrive and access the shared abundance we all deserve. As I say every week, I, I think of it kind of like a weekly trip to the Marvel Universe, but the superheroes I get to talk with every week work with law and policy. And for this week's episode, I am really, really excited to sit down with someone whose work I have been super, super interested to learn about as a member of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. And I'm really excited to bring her onto the podcast. Her name is Kara Reedy. She is a journalist and the founder and director of a new organization called the Disabled Journalists Association, which she's been setting up to identify the needs of disabled people in journalism, to amplify the voices of disabled journalists across the U.S. It's it's just getting off the ground, just launched their new website, discojourno.com. You can find that in show notes. Check it out to learn more. And if you're a disabled journalist, check out the survey that they're running as they work to lay the foundation for the organization's work. We'll plug that in show notes as well. Kara, welcome to Off Kilter. It's really cool to be in conversation with you. Thank you. It's I'm excited to be here. I, I want to give a, a plug to my sister, Rebecca Coakley, who introduced us um, and who was the one who suggested that we do this episode. I feel like all roads always lead back to Rebecca Coakley and we got to like plug the Coakley verse when it happens. Um, uh, so thank you, uh, Coakley and Absentia for making this introduction and for, for putting us together for the collaborative or putting us together for this episode. But Kara, before we get too far into talking about what the new organization is about, um, and I mentioned you just launched that website this week, this, just this past week, actually. So congratulations. Um, um, but I want to give you the chance to introduce yourself to off Kilter's listeners um, and to share a little bit about how you come to this point in your path. I mentioned that you're a journalist. How did you get into journalism? Talk a little bit about the road that you've you've uh, you've walked so I got into journalism in a really strange way. Um, I was in art school in Philadelphia and then decided to move to New York uh, right after 9-11, which was not really a good idea. And there were no jobs. So I ended up at Time Warner Corporate filling out Excel spreadsheets for the um, benefits finance department. And um, I, one of my friend's dad said to me, do they know you can't add? And I was like, no, but they'll find out later. Um, but anyway, I tried to get out of there really quickly. And I, if you stayed at Time Warner Corporate for a year, you could transfer anywhere. So a job at CNN came up and I applied for it and then never heard back. And then about a week later, I was on a bus and this woman that I knew from the shared cafeteria walked up to me and said, we don't know each other's names. Like, I, you know, I'm Arlene and I said, I'm Kara. And she said, where do you work? And I told her and I said, where do you work? And she said, I'm Lou Dobbs' assistant. And I said, well, that's funny because I just applied for a job at CNN but I didn't hear back. And she said, which one? And I told her, and she goes, that's gone. She said, next time, let me know. Literally a week later, a job came up to be an anchor assistant for the morning show. I called Arlene 
Arlene. Arlene said, send me that resume. And then that's how I got into CNN. And once I got there, like I have a background in political science, my degrees in political science. I have another one in photography. So not really journalism focused. But once I got into CNN, I was like, oh, what's this great world where you can tell stories, you can hold power to account. This is amazing. Like it's everything and it's visual. It's everything that I've ever wanted. And so um, actually we, my, one of my anchor, both my anchors got kicked off the morning show and one went to the documentary unit and I went with her. And then we started doing documentaries and I started actually producing. And that's how I got into like really doing journalism. And then I loved, I just loved it. Like it was just something that really stuck to me. It was storytelling, it was visual, um, and it held power to account, which is something that I just have always wanted to do since birth. I love that story so much. And I especially love stories that um, have like such a, a meant to be element to it, right? It's like you're in the right place, right time, meet the person. And it's like, all of a sudden, that's what opens the door to, 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 to getting that job. So clearly, this was this was your path that you that you found. So take us to present day, right? How, how did you get from being in journalism to saying, you know what, actually, I'm going to start this thing called the, the disabled journalists association and, and how did you get to the place of, of believing that something like this needs to exist well cnn was a long 10 years i was there for 10 years it was really long and the entire time i was there they never would give me the title of journalist i would do all the work i would get you know they were always talking about numbers and how many clicks how many views page views all of these things and i was meeting all of the numbers that they liked whenever i wrote something um but there was this reluctance they were just kind of like well you're untested you're untested you're untested but then i would look around the room and there'd be these people that would write maybe two stories a week and they weren't like investigative pieces and they had full-time jobs doing it they weren't actually getting the page views or the numbers. And so it felt personal. And it, I could tell that they didn't want me there because of who I am, not because of what I could do, because the excuses were just ridiculous at some point. I used to pitch disability stories. They would say things like, nobody cares about that. Um, um, I would pitch stories that weren't disability stories. And then they would say, is this another dwarf story just because I pitched it? So there was just like really pretty naked ableism happening in newsroom. And so I, at the end of the 10 years, I had to go like, cause I was starting to lose it. And like, cause you internalize all that stuff and it makes you sick. And I, left and I wandered around for like a good four or five years. I freelanced at NPR. I did a documentary for the guardian. Um, and then 2020 hit and there was the pandemic and I was, I was actually running out of money and 
didn't really have a job. And then Lawrence Carter Long called and said, I think I may have a job for you. And I was like, well, sign me up. What is it? And he said, Judy Human wants to speak to you. And I was like, Judy, like, she don't know me. <laughs> oh. um, and I got to the meeting and she said, they were like, we want to change the way media represents disability. And they were like, advertising, film and TV and journalism. And I was like, that's a lot. But okay. And they were like, what are your ideas? So I came up with a list of like 10 ideas that span those not advertising because I really don't know that much about advertising. And so I was not going to do that. But film and TV and journalism, I came up with about 10 ideas. And then Judy said, let's go to Ford uh, with your ideas. And as soon as I said Disabled Journalists Association, Farai Chidaya went, that's the one, and put funding behind it. Um, and then I took... The first two years of this funding has really been um, research. So I've been teaching newsrooms how to cover disability, but that, yeah, that's great. They get an hour with me or an hour and a half, but that's not going to change them. But what it does is it gives me information about what's happening inside the newsrooms because people can be really honest with me about what they feel about disabled people or what they feel about disabled stories or anything, um, which then has led us to kind of where we are and why we're now sort of launching website, trying to get people together. I love that. So we're going to pull out a bunch of those different threads and make you tell more of this story. But I have to just say, of course, Judy Human is part of the story. Um, uh, as listeners of the show will know, uh, godmother of the disability uh, rights movement. Um, and um, and I love that Lawrence Carter Long is part of the story, too. We haven't had him on the show in a long time, but that was years ago for one of my uh, really, really fun episodes, actually talking about disability in film, um, which is is one of one of Lawrence's um, things. So I, I, I love that both of them show up in, in your story. And of course, they do. Um, uh, <laughs> So um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about why why you're why you're starting this organization and why Ford was interested in it. Of course, the Ford Foundation is you know anchoring, helping um, get you know get get resources out to the the field in, in so many ways, and is also a supporter of this show and of the Disability Project at, at the Century Foundation. Always need to thank them for that. Um, but you started to tell your own personal story about um, being undervalued and being systematically um, kept from ever even being called a journalist. I mean, wow, does that weigh on my heart as you tell that story over the course of a decade at, at one of the nation's you know, most um, renowned and, and visible um, and powerful news outlets. Um, but it, it isn't just your story, right? That That's one story of so many um, uh, that are that are you know honestly the rule and not the exception when it comes to people with disabilities in the in the field of journalism. Talk a little bit about what you've been learning as you've been doing that research, as you've been talking to folks, um, and and just generally what the picture is for folks with disabilities in in our newsrooms. We'll talk a little bit about the barriers to getting into the newsroom too. But um, what's the what's the picture for folks? I know it's it's much more than just your own story. It's pretty bleak. So um, there are, there have been some movements in, in the newsrooms and there are fellowships like the New York Times and 
now there's a disability reporter at the Washington Post. But, you know, that's kind of few and far between. Um, and it it paints it. And what I will. OK, here's what I will say. I think there's not a ton of visibly disabled and I hate this visible, invisible kind of thing, because I feel like invisible disabilities aren't really invisible. They're invisible for a while. And then there's a flare and they're very visible. So but, you know, people can mask. But I think that there aren't a ton of visibly quote unquote disabled people in newsrooms because um, journalists are, are like the whole industry is kind of afraid of it. And um, I think there are many, many, many more people inside newsrooms that have invisible quote unquote disabilities and who are hiding. And my, like everything I'm doing, I'm not trying to out anyone because people make choices based on their financial situation. Cause someone was like, are you outing people? I'm like, of course not. Like you got to do what you got to do. That's not what this is about. This is about changing newsrooms so that you don't have to hide. So you can ask for accommodations so you can be comfortable where you work um, without feeling like you're going to get, a, you know, repercussions. But I've heard all kinds of stories um, people ask worried about stimming in newsrooms um people uncomfortable like just asking for more time any of the things that you might need as a disabled person most people don't feel comfortable asking for because there's a grind culture in newsrooms that also is creating disabilities as people in the newsroom. So that's the other thing. It's not just that there's disabled people that show up in these newsrooms. Newsrooms are also harming people. I, I so appreciate you bringing that in, right? It's the, um, the, it, the, the actual causing of harm to people in grind culture, which, you know, also true in think tanks, also true in politics broadly, also true on the Hill, the campaign world, right? And and we we talk very little about that, in, at least in my uh, awareness, um, in the context of, of media, right? And so so that's, you know, it's not just folks who are there um, uh, who have disabilities, it's also the, the disabilities being created. I, I actually want to come back to that to that theme as well. But um, I feel like you started to go there. But let's let's talk a little bit more about it. Um, the the barriers that folks faced to getting into these newsrooms in the first place, right? There might be, I'm somebody who identifies as invisibly disabled. I, I've, I've been a lot more out about that in recent years. It took me a long time to start to say that in, in public for all the reasons you were naming, right? Because you, you're, there is very good reason for being afraid of repercussions or um, of, of, you know, not being um, uh, viewed as someone who's going to be up to the job. And you know, I, I bridge a few different worlds, right? Um, I 
journalism is part of it doing this podcast, which I've now been doing for, I guess, eight years. So I have to start identifying as like, that is actually part of my life. It's not just a side hustle, but, um, you know, even in the think tank world, it can be hard to, to come out and to um, be visible. So just appreciate all of, of what you said about it's it's not about judging people got to do what they got to do. But um, but talk a little bit about some of the barriers that, that folks with disabilities face to even getting into the newsroom. And particularly maybe if it's folks with apparent disabilities that, that they can't hide. They just, I, I'm surprised I got there, yeah. to be quite honest. I was the, it was me and a, like, that I know of at CNN in New York was me and a photojournalist who had been injured in, um, uh, I think he was injured in Kuwait, uh, w- one of the wars. I can't, I don't want to be specific because I don't really know, but he was injured in one of the wars and they kept him on and which is great because he's a great photojournalist. So why wouldn't you? But um, I didn't see a ton of people. I There was one other dwarf intern at one point and I was like, oh my God, <laughs> here he is. And then I never saw him again after the internship. He, and he wasn't my intern, but uh, it just it just was like they didn't consider it. I never saw a wheelchair user. I never saw anyone unless there were people that had PTSD, but I found that a lot of them, if they weren't getting help or the they ended up kind of phased out. Um, it's just not really safe and i they don't hire they don't hire there are some places that are starting to hire visibly disabled people but they don't have the infrastructure around the people they're just hiring them and then expecting them to move in the same way non-disabled people move in this grind culture and it's not going to work And so then disabled people start to feel uncomfortable and then leave. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's pretty bleak. So I I feel like you're doing a really good job here of setting the table for why this organization needs to exist. But I kind of want to ask what probably seems like a fairly obvious question, but just to name it and to give you a chance to speak a little bit to it. um, Like, why does it matter? to have disabled people in newsrooms? Why does it matter um, to, I mean, obviously there's a you know broad national conversation going on right now about um, diversity and equity and inclusion and accessibility, right? DEIA and that often folks will sort of take it for granted as just, well, that's just what we do now. But, you know, I, I actually feel like talking about the why and like why it matters, especially in the context of the media is, is really important not to skip that step in the conversations. So why does inclusion of people with disabilities matter in the newsroom? And and why does that matter to the media coverage that those newsrooms end up putting out? Well, if you're not disabled, you really don't understand how the system oppresses disabled people. And there's no way for you to understand it until you become disabled. And, you know, it's like, white people writing about the black experience 
you don't really know what the black experience is. And it doesn't matter if you have a kid that's black and you're white or same thing. If you have a kid that's disabled and you're not like you don't really get it. And it's not there's no shame in that. And I'm not. But there are ways that the entire system oppresses us. And we understand the failure of the system at a granular level that non-disabled people don't understand. And so if you're going to tell the story, how are you going to actually tell a full story if you don't have? And this is the thing. I'm not saying that non-disabled people can't tell disability stories. But if you are in a newsroom where there are disabled people that are hiding or there are no disabled people that you know of, then you yourself are functioning in an ableist system. And so now you're going to go report on somebody else's system. Fix yourself. And like the best newsrooms, and this is what the racial reckoning in newsrooms was about in 2020, the best newsrooms have people from every walk of life in them. Because when newsrooms are functioning really well, you know, Bob will be at one side writing a story and there might be a disability angle and he'll turn to Sally and be like, hey, Sally, can you give me some context on this? Or is there a source I should be you know, like, what is, what should I be doing? And then Sally will be like, Hey, contact this person, this person, this person that just makes stories better. Right. And to say that you don't need disabled people in your newsroom, it's just, it's clown town. Like, you know, you do, you, you, you also know you need black people. You also know you need like, you know, you need all of these things, all of these things. And you're pretending like you're not. You don't. And no, keep going. I didn't mean to interrupt you. And then the comment section goes, goes bananas. And everybody goes, well, why is the comment section going bananas? Because you're misrepresenting people. I went to a conference. I just got back Sunday. And they had, there was a whole day of DEI conversations. There was taking white supremacy out of language. There was, I, I mean, how do we fix this? How do we fix this? Not one of those conferences and those sessions did anyone mention disability, except for me, who was always like, hello, hey, hi. And they were like, oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, you're right. And these were people who actually cared about it. Like, and if they're not mentioning it, how are they covering stories? How are you doing it? You're not. And yeah, people and I, can people can die. Like people are dying because you're not doing this. And I, I feel like implicit in what you're saying, but just to 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 bring it out a little bit as well, right? It's it isn't just disability stories, right? Quote unquote disability stories. Um, which, yes, you, you were pointing out, there's a couple of major news outlets like The Times, like The Post, which have actually said, hey, we're actually going to have at least a fellow who focuses on this, which, you know, without question, definitely a step in the right direction. But um, there, there's still such a silo when it comes to how so many folks in the media treat disability coverage where it's like, oh, well, we have disability stories and then we have other stories, right? We have like normal, regular stories that aren't about people with disabilities. And it's like, y'all, every issue is a disability issue. We got 
one in four people in this country living with disabilities, plus, you know, all the families that are that are impacted. And just also generally, it's something that's probably going to happen to everyone at some point in our lives. I'm a broken record on the show talking about that. But um, every story has a disability angle. But as you're beautifully pointing out, right, folks aren't going to see that the same way that they aren't going to see what the race angle is, or, you know, what the, the veterans angle is, or, you know, whatever it is, right, if they don't have that perspective, or if there's no one in the newsroom and no editors, right, who can who can lift that up, because no one reporter is ever going to have every perspective they can cover. Um, so curious if you have thoughts about that in terms of how you, um, how you view that siloing and, 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 um, uh, and just generally that point. So that's actually a lot of what I teach in newsrooms is I'll start out and some someone will ask me to come talk in a newsroom and they'll say, oh, OK, yeah, please come in. And they'll make up some title for it that I haven't approved. And I'm like, OK, whatever, whatever. I don't care. And then I get there and some people will say to me, you know, we don't kind we really don't really need this what we need is you to tell us all the words that we shouldn't say and i'm like look if you don't know the words that you shouldn't say that's not really my issue because the ap style book there's the national center on disability and journalism that has a style book like go find that resource that's not what i'm doing what i'm going to do right now is how to help you Tell, I'm going to teach you how to tell better stories that include disability. And I talk about mass incarceration. I talk about um, police killings. I talk about climate change. I talk about race. I talk about how all of those things intersect. And I talk about stories that don't talk about them. Like Flint, Michigan. Why is no one following up on Flint, Michigan? Because I'm sure that now that all those kids that have been drinking lead, that Miss Little Miss Flint is now 16 years old. She was a baby. She was a little kid, like seven or eight when this started. She's 16 now trying to get money for filters. But what has happened to all of those kids? Are there more incarcerated children now there? because they have they got disabilities from drinking the lead water what are the school rates like why isn't someone checking on this and no one is and that should be an indictment of the government and everyone else like people should be holding the government accountable for that but they just drop it and there's you know Hurricane Katrina was a disability issue. How many wheel have pictures of wheelchairs did we see floating in the water? All those people that got left in that hospital to just die. And I and they, you know, they told the stories, but they didn't tell the story of how black people are more likely to be disabled. And so you're talking about hot spots of blackness, New Orleans, Flint. And you're not talking about like how poverty creates disability. You're not talking about how people got trapped. You're not talking about any of that with the word disability in it. Except we know all these facts. We know that disabled people are more likely to live in poverty. They're more likely to live in extreme poverty. Why aren't you investigating that? And it, 
it bothers me that the numbers are right there and the intersections are right there, but they silo out like, okay, we're going to talk about race. And then you say, okay, what about disability? And they're like, no, we're talking about race. What? <laughs> You've got Native Americans have the highest rate of disability. You have COVID come in and there's whole swaths of, of Indian country that don't have running water. Yeah, what's what's um, ringing in my head um, as as you're saying all of that, right? It's it's Audre Lorde's famous words: um, "People don't lead single issue lives," right? And so, of course, you know we've we've had whole conversations on this show with Vilesa Thompson about intersectionality and Kimberly Crimshaw's work. And um, I think actually Mia Ives Ribley recently brought that back up in in a, in a, a more recent episode as well. But um, I, I I so appreciate the way that you're um, that you're bringing that together, and also that you're doing that directly in newsrooms. Um, how has the response been when you bring this to folks, and you're and you're saying, "Y'all, where's the coverage? <laughs> right? Why is no one following up in Flint?" And side note, I have a particular reporter I'd like to connect you with who should write that story, who was just bringing that up at a an event I was at recently, who I think could could benefit from hearing from you um, as. Uh, someone who I think could do a lot of good on that, but um, I won't name him and, and dox him right now. But um, uh, uh, but um, how has that been received? How, how when you go into these newsrooms and they give you the title you didn't ask for, and they they say, "Hey, we want your do's and don'ts page," and you say, "Actually, I'm here to tell you some stuff you didn't maybe bring me in to hear." How is that received? Mixed. Um, so I'm a journalist, and I so it's okay that I say this, but the egos in newsroom aren't like intense and so it either goes what what like i didn't know any of this or where'd you get your facts or you're you, how do you i've had this question how do you mix your advocacy with being a journalist like you can't be an advocate and a journalist <laughs> like I said, well, you're the number one, you're the one calling me an advocate. I didn't call myself that. Number two, everything I've told you is facts. So my facts mean that I'm less than because I'm bringing you facts. So I'm an advocate because I'm bringing you facts. And they're like, what? And I said, well, I'm a journalist that's bringing you facts. And you just have never heard these facts. So now you're calling me an advocate because I'm bringing you facts. And they're like, where did you get your facts from? I'm like, the government. Oh, where? Census, GAO, Bureau of Prisons, like wherever, whatever issue you're dealing with, they have the numbers. You haven't looked for them. That's not my issue. That's a you issue. And you need to take that back and own it. But there's a lot of ego. Like some of some people are great about it and they're like, I'm going to implement this. And some people are like, I, I just, they, it's almost like because they didn't think of it, then it must be not right or true. Which well, I think it's a it's a critique, right? It's a critique of the way they're approaching media coverage, and and so yeah, ego ego doesn't spoiler egos don't like critique, do they? So no, they don't. But I'm not here for your egos. I don't care. I, I don't. And I spent too much time in newsrooms 
saying this stuff and because I had no power, it was you're problematic, you're this, you're that. And now the tables have turned and they kind of need me, but they're still uncomfortable with it. Well, I, I'm really, really, really excited to see where things go as you get this organization off the ground. Um, I want to talk a little more about what that long-term picture looks like. Um, uh, and, and and then, you know, I've got some other questions too. I'm going to do a little bit of a, you know, who is Kara Reedy section, as I often like to do with, with folks that I have on this show. But um, um, talk to me a little bit about some of what your long-term goals and hopes are. You're just, as I mentioned, in this early stage of getting this organization off the ground. It's a huge, exciting thing to get the website up and running. One of the first things you're doing is conducting a survey. Um, actually, let's talk about that survey for a second, and then we can maybe talk about long-term goals too, because I want to make sure folks um, check that out and, and participate. I know we actually have a fair number of disabled journalists who um, are part of the audience for this show, and I want to send you some folks. So what are you looking to find out from the survey? What are your goals of the survey, and, and how can folks participate? So you can participate at discojournal.com. Um, the survey link is at the bottom. We partnered with Accessible Surveys, which um, is in, they're centered in um, England and France. Um, who knew? But if if you have an accessibility need, it probably will accommodate you. I don't come at me if I missed one, but like, but tell me if I missed one because they're really active in wanting to rebuild the system. So whatever we don't have, I can go back and give them feedback and they'll probably build it in the next three or four months, which I think is amazing. Um, so what we're trying to find out is, you know, it's the, the survey is anonymous, so you don't have to tell us who you are. We do kind of ask where you work, but you also don't have to tell us if you feel uncomfortable or feel like you'll be targeted. Um, we're not trying to make anyone unsafe. But what we're trying to find out is what what does a, a disabled journalist situation look like? Are you hiding? Do you feel like you can't ask for accommodations? Have you asked for accommodations and then... Um, had repercussions after that. This is, we're really trying to find out how newsrooms are treating disabled people across the country because so much of journalism is, well, where's the data? Well, we don't have any data because journalism, newsrooms aren't really taking a lot of data around disability. They're doing it around race and gender and um, sexual orientation, but they're not really collecting it around disability. And if they do, they're not gonna release it to us because then that will indict them. So that's why, cause someone was like, well, why don't you partner with other places? I'm like, cause I want it to be our data and for us to own it. And so that we can then report it back to them. So it's trying to find out What's happening in newsrooms for disabled people? What is your situation? Are you safe? That kind of stuff. Because then I have, when I go to these newsrooms, I can be like, here's the data and it's not looking good for you guys. 
which is because I already, right, oh, is, is I already know it doesn't look good. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I need to say. It's like sometimes you know the thing, but you need to actually go out and, and do the work of gathering the data because then it, it you know, it that's when it becomes facts, right? Like to your point before, right? As opposed to just, a, you know, a bunch of people's opinions or, you know, anecdotes, right? Which you've got plenty of, a lot of us have plenty of, but I, I know I'm really excited to see what that survey um, yields. What is the timeline? When is it wrapping up? How long are you keeping it open? Uh, we're, you know, our timeline keeps changing of how long, because our, our timeline of when it got up keeps changing and how we're promoting it. So at first it was the end of September, but I, I probably think it's going to be closer to the end of October, beginning of November. Um, and maybe we'll extend it if we're like getting steady responses. That's great. Yeah. And, and like I said, we'll plug it in, in show notes and, you know, we'll be sure to tweet it out and whatnot, make sure that we can get, get folks participating. Um, but, um, but so then zooming back out from that, if that's the immediate step that you're undergoing right now as part of this research, as part of figuring out, you know, what, what are the, um, the needs? What is the landscape in a way that's adding some data on top of anecdote and experience? Um, what are, what are your long term goals um, for this organization? What is what is your hope if you're thinking like, you know, 10 years from now, and you're looking back at what what it has been able to achieve? Um, what's your what's your dream? What's your what's your 10 year dream? I really want it to be kind of a place where disability stories that don't get a voice in newsrooms can come and we will give a, a space and a platform. Like I've always said, it can't just be an advocacy organization. We also, because we are, we are not represented well so far in newsrooms and we don't have any power, even power, like people power, enough people inside, we are going to have to create content as well. And so there will be a, a content creation portion of um, what we do, but also a a a unified force where we can come back at newsrooms who are harming people and we know they're harming people without the the one person in the room having to say hey you're harming me we can then say because that's what nabj national association of black journalists does that's what the national association of hispanic journalists does when something bad is going down in a newsroom based on their membership that person doesn't have to respond the organization responds and then there's nothing that they can do to us because we're not under them and so that's the real goal is to be a voice a unified voice so that we can be, we can have some kind of protection on the outside. That was something that I, I really wished I had the entire time I was there. I tried to join National Association of Black Journalists and like no shade to them, but they don't talk about disability. So there was always this, okay, well, maybe you should hustle more. Or maybe you should do this, or maybe you should do that. That doesn't attack the actual elephant in the room which is well i'm a dwarf guys like i this isn't this isn't something i can do like it's not me being weak it's me like i'm alone 
I'm alone and you guys aren't speaking to it. You're just kind of saying, you know, just buckle down and get better. I, and I, I love all of that. And I know there's also going to be more that gets fleshed out as you develop your your strategy and, and all the pieces that are going to come from the um, the survey and the landscaping and the research that you're doing. But um, I, I so love your, your weaving in. Yes, there's going to be a place that people can go, the individuals who are, you know, not gaining access or not, not being treated well. But I, I also want to ask one other kind of bigger picture question, because I get very like I get systems change energy from you, right? Like you're you're not going to you know going about this trying to say like hey it's one person at a time. Yes, that's part of what needs to happen, and people need that protection and that people power and that backing, and for someone to have their back. But um, I'm gonna I'm gonna raise up a straw man and sort of ask a question that some folks might be wondering, or that maybe a lot of folks in newsrooms think, which is like, is it even possible? To, for newsrooms to become a place that disabled people who need accommodations, because not all disabled people need accommodations, but many do, um, can work and can thrive. Um, and that grind culture is so enmeshed and so normalized within that industry. Um, and again, I, I emphasized before, it's not just the newsrooms, it's also, you know, politics and, um, uh, you know, many of the industries it covers. Um, but I'm, I'm curious how you speak to that when, when folks maybe say, well, look, this just isn't a place for you. I think, well, the newsroom industry is changing rapidly. Um, the big the big guys don't really know what they're doing anymore. Um, you can look at you can look at CNN. Like it's not this isn't and it's not new. It's not like every everyone because I'm gonna because uh, I'm from CNN. I was raised at CNN. Like everybody's looking at Chris Licht, who was the last CEO as oh well it was chris lick's fault i'm like was that or was it culture and so do i think i can change the culture of cnn no i don't and that you know several funders asked me that well why do you keep like if you don't think you can change the culture then why are you doing it well the culture is changing around these big guys and so what is going to happen and what is happening is there's these all these little startups are coming up. And those are the people that I'm really hopeful for because they're nimble enough to change immediately. There's the 19th, there's capital B, there's URL media, and all of those organizations have reached out or are working on it. Like the they're all active and are they perfect? No, but they're thinking about it and that's different than the other ones. And so I think there's going to be a ton of smaller, more nimble startups that kind of go around these big guys and then will then force the big guys change. So, no, do I think I'm going to change the New York Times? No, I don't. Washington Post? Absolutely not. Like, you're just, the industry, it's too enmeshed. They're too old. And I don't mean old people. I mean, like, old structures. And there's a lot of people that don't want it to change. And so, more power to you, but eventually you're going to have to. 
And obviously, a lot is changing when it comes to the workplace generally across industries, right? And COVID has had a lot to do with that. And remote work is now a thing in ways that are, I mean, I'm having a conversation with you in the DC office that I allegedly work at that I'm never at because I'm always in Charlottesville. So people are probably noticing a different background, right? It's like weird for me to be in the office. That's just one um, uh, example, right, of how work is is changing in so many ways. So I I share your optimism that even if it is a long game and even if if it starts with some of the newer places and some of the startups, right? There is there is obviously a lot that is changing around even the most hardened um, uh, establishment institutions across a whole bunch of different sectors. Um, journalism being just just one of them. Um, and then the, the other question I want to ask you before I, I get into a little bit of a lightning round, where I ask you some questions about you as a as an um, as a journalist, but also now apparently as an advocate. If we're gonna if we're gonna call you that, you're gonna accept that title. Um, is um, you referenced before, and I, I feel like you started to speak to this just a little bit, but I want to give you a little bit of space to, to connect the dots back around. Um, um, you know, I mentioned that you're a member of the Disability, uh, the Disabled Journalists Association is actually a member of the Disability Economic Justice Collaborative. And you started when you were laying the foundation for how you got to the place of founding the organization, um, uh, that, that this was actually part of what attracted you to journalism in the first place, right? It's about holding power to account, right? Um, and that that is obviously fundamentally what what the one of the core reasons media exists, and and you know it's it's um, uh, at its most ideal and it, at its its you know highest expression, it is what media is best for, right? When it's used well, um, I I'm curious to hear you speak a little bit to how you see this organization and also just the general mission of the organization uh, that that of intentional and equitable and diverse representation in newsrooms right with a disability lens right which is new for a lot of folks um how that fits into the larger picture of disability justice and and of disability economic justice um specifically well how are you going to make any of those changes if people don't know anything about it right Media, if you're not broadcasting all of these issues, you're working by yourself and you have to activate the public. And the best way to activate the public is through media. Like that's, that's, I mean, that's why I love it so much because you can turn an image, can turn entire, like, it can change the world. Like people see things and they're like, ew, we can't do that anymore. So if we as disabled people are not actively working in that section, we're never going to win. We're never going to win. We have to. And I, you know, am I, do I, did I grow up in grind culture? Do I have those, we got to win? Yes, I've probably been to one too many um, president's talks at newsrooms where they're like, we have to win, get the ratings. Like, but I kind of, you know, I believe that. And so I feel that way for us. Like we have to win, we have to get better. Like we, we have to force this these images we have to force these ideas out in the world so people can see them and understand it because as soon as i start whenever i start evangelizing and telling people all of these facts everybody goes what what even at the conference we did a panel ryan Pryor was actually on the panel with us so we 
we did this panel and we started dropping facts and you could hear the uh in the room you could always hear it and it so it's i don't really believe that people don't want to know it i think they don't know what they don't know Yep, I love I love that answer. And um, obviously, right, telling stories is what builds awareness. And if you don't have awareness, you're never going to actually get change because there's not going to be anything people feel they need to act on, right? And so it's it's that what are we shining a light on, and in what ways, and whose stories are we telling, right? So I, um, it's part of why I believe very passionately in what you're building, and and part of why I'm excited to be in in collaboration with you in um, hopefully a growing number of ways. But now I'm going to put you on this. But and ask some questions about you. <laughs> I'm going to do a little lightning round to close us out. Um, uh, do you, a question I love asking folks, and and I feel like it's come through in this conversation. But I'm going to give you a chance to to put it into some words. Um, what is your personal mission statement, and um, and and how did you come to find it? Ugh. So, I personal mission statement. So, I really hate injustice and unfairness like i don't like it i've never liked it and even when i was a small child in fact my goodbye cnn uh speech one of my managers said when she knows something's wrong she won't let it go and then she pushes us until we do the right thing and she's always right about it and that's kind of not saying I'm always right. I'm right a lot, but like <laughs> not always right. But I do, I just, it drives me bananas when I see injustice. And most of the time it's injustice for no reason. I love that answer. I feel like I, I, it's hard to come up with a better personal mission statement than I really hate injustice. <laughs> Loves it up pretty nicely. We're going to put that on your on your uh, your business cards at some point. Um, uh, so one of the premises of the way that I organize this podcast is I believe that everybody who comes on this show is is a superhero. Um, I'm a nerd, so it's you know superheroes who work with law and policy and culture change and all those things. Um, so if you accept my premise that you are indeed one of those superheroes, what are your superpowers? Um. I, what is persistence? I, I think persistence. I don't, I don't have what one where like, I just won't let it go. I, I don't, if it's a problem that needs to be fixed, I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to let it go until we fix it. I like that. I like that a lot for you. Um, and I, I bring it into this podcast a lot, but just because I feel like these are words that ring in my ears a long time um, and have rung in my ears for a long time. Um, I, I was taught pretty early on as a legal aid lawyer that an advocate is someone who simply refuses to go away, <laughs> which is like 90% of it, right? It's just not not being willing to go away. So I love that answer. Um, uh, a question I'm going to ask because I've committed to bringing it into every episode. We did a whole season on self-care as political warfare, interrogating Audre Lorde's famous but usually superficially understood words. Um, but I committed to bringing at least one question into every episode um, from there. How does self-care show up for you um, as a leader within the disability community? How do you take care of yourself? Do you have any particular tips or wisdom to share? 
I'm not the best at taking care of myself. I'm going to be honest about that. None of us are. Um, I love a nap, though. I, like, I don't care. I was at the hair salon yesterday, and my hairstylist knows it. She was like, when your foot starts tapping, you're out. And I will go out on her while she's braiding my hair, and I don't care. So, a nap. Um, and I like good food. Like, I have digestive issues, so you know, a good, like, quality day of eating healthily is self-care to me, too. Relieves everything, makes my body calm down. Um, yeah, I think feel like those are my two. I love those answers. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm with you on the digestive uh, issues, which doesn't mean we don't love food. You can have digestive issues and still actually love food. You just have to, you know, you have a complicated relationship with it. So um, I, I'm going to ask you a question that is one of my favorite to ask folks in um, this podcast context, which is, and I, I know it's a little unfair because like making you pick one is kind of unfair, but I'm kind of unfair sometimes. Um, if you had to pick one, what is in your opinion, the most toxic limiting belief that we as a collective need to get rid of so that we can actually build an economy where everyone is free, including disabled people? I think what is really toxic is um, the inability to listen and like active listening, like where you're not worried about what you're getting ready to say. And I have to work on that sometimes because I'm like, I know. And then, so I'm going to tell a quick little story in the summers. I manage a concession stand at the largest outdoor theater in America. And so I work with 16 to 22 year olds and they're different. They are different people than we are because they were raised differently. And so one thing that it is management at its base level. And one thing I have to do is shut up a lot and just let them talk. Because how can I lead someone if I'm not listening to them? Because I may have ideas of what I think they need, but maybe that's not exactly what they need. So I have to shut up and listen and actively listen and be quiet and maybe not make a decision until I've been around them for a while. Because all people want of any age is to be heard. And so in order to hear people, you actually have to shut up. I love that answer so much. And I also especially love it in the context of, of talking about journalism, right? Which at its best is, is people doing active listening and then actually using those platforms to elevate what they've heard. So I, I love that answer. Um, and it's a, it's a totally, that's, that's unlike any answer I think I've gotten to that question yet. So I really love that. Um, uh, active listening is something that is, uh, we, I think we could all work on it, uh, even the people who think that we're, we're good at it, right? And often the people who do the most talking are the people who need most to work at that. Um, and <laughs> I am definitely one of those people. So it's it's been a journey for me. Um, uh, yeah, um, I, my next question is going to come in the context of a brilliant idea that one of our producers, Kings Floyd, had. Um, uh, so I'm going to ask the question and then I'm going to tell you why I asked it. Um, what is your hype song or your walk-up song? 
that changes. Um, Doesn't have to be forever. It can be your answer for now. We can let you change it later. Okay. I'm, I have to look it up. It's by no name. Um, it is called Namesake. Okay. I don't think I know that song. It has the best kind of baseline beat that, because I, you know, up until a couple of years ago, I was in New York full time. And so you need, you need a power song to walk from your house to the subway, like with your headphone, like you have to power walk, you gotta walk through the streets. And so I like songs with really good beats and bass lines. But my latest one is Namesake by No Name. All right. I'm going to check that song out. Um, it's the first one that we've gotten as the answer to that question in this whole season. It wasn't a song I knew. So I'm excited to discover this song. Um, and the reason we're asking is because, A, like, you know, we all need, we all need you know, good up songs that, like, help us shift the energy. But also because Kings is going to be making a playlist with all the songs from this season. So that will be in the playlist. Let us know if you have something else you want to like add in at some point, if it shifts for you and you have something else you want to, you want to nominate, but um, I'll get back to you once I've heard the song. Cause I love a good baseline too. And also I am also with you that like, I've got headphones in and I'm doing like, if I'm walking down the street anywhere, right? Like there is, there is a level of music in my ears and it's my own personal soundtrack. So I love you describing that. I was picturing you like through the streets of New York, like on the way to the subway. So um and then the um, last question I'm going to give you is just a chance to plug like what's next for um, the, Dis the Disabled Journalists Association. Um, uh, what do you want to plug? We talked about the survey. We'll have that in show notes. We'll also have the website in show notes. Folks should get in touch with Kara um, if they're interested in learning more um, or if they, they want to join or, or kind of get on the list. But um, anything in the last um, couple of minutes that we have that you want to plug or anything you're excited about? Um, it's Honestly, it's really the survey, the survey, the survey, and also sign up, like sign up, get yourself known by us so that we can track you and have you on our list for new info. We're planning content and events and stuff that will be coming up in the next few months. And so we'd love anyone and everyone to come hang out with us, but definitely survey, survey, survey. <laughs> Um, that's our biggest thing right now. I'm super excited. Um, and I'm excited to get to hear uh, what results come from that survey. And I, I know we're going to be doing lots together with the collaborative. So just really thrilled to have you as a member um, of that and excited about what you've been building. Kara Reedy is the founder and the director of the Disabled Journalists Association. Um, check it out at Disco Journal, which we've got in show notes, Disco Journal. Dot com. Um, we've plugged that survey, but if you are a disabled journalist and maybe you don't identify that way, but like, I mean, I took the survey because I, I didn't think about myself as a disabled journalist and then I don't think about myself as a journalist at all. And then I was like, oh, no, actually, I do qualify. So check it out, even if you're not entirely sure. Um, uh, and um, and Kara, I'm really excited to see what comes from this. Um, and I'm just really, really grateful for your leadership. Um, I think you're really cool. So um, I'm, I'm excited we got to have this conversation and it was a lot of fun for me. Thank you so much for having me. I think you're really cool too. <laughs> <laughs> Love a good mutual admiration society. We will we will talk soon and, and uh, always, always gratitude to the Coakleyverse. 
And that does it for this week's show. Off Kilter is powered by the Century Foundation and produced by We Act Radio, with a special shout out to executive producer Troy Miller and his merry band of farm animals, and the phenomenal Kings Floyd, who keeps us all in line week to week. Transcripts, which help us make the show accessible, are courtesy of Cheryl Green and her fabulous feline co-worker. Find us every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And if you like what we do here at Off Kilter Enterprises, send us some love by hitting that subscribe button and rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts to help other folks find the pod. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.